What's up, Elixir Talk fans? It's Desmond. A uh, quick note about this episode. We actually recorded it a couple of months ago following MPEX NYC in late May, and uh, we were trying to capitalize off of the momentum there to have a continuing discussion with Brian and Dave about some of the ideas they presented. And we hope to release the episode right after, at the same time that we released the talks from the conference. However, it took us a little while to get the talks from the conference out, so we've had this episode on ice for a couple of weeks. Anyway, the talk's been out for a while now, and we are pleased to bring you this episode. So please enjoy this slightly tardy, but still very interesting discussion with Brian Mitchell and Dave Thomas. Hello and welcome to Elixir Talk, your favorite podcast on the Elixir programming language and ecosystem, brought to you by me, Desmond Bowie, and my co-host, Chris Bell. Hello, Desmond. How are you doing? Hello, Chris. How are you? You sound a little far away. I sound far away? Do I sound less echoey than I normally do? You sound like you're in an airlock. I feel like I'm in an airlock as well, but weirdly, it smells like fish in here, and it's really gross. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so that's my Tuesday. How about you? Uh, pretty good. Pretty good. It's, um, back in sunny California after a fun weekend in New York for, uh, MPEX NYC. It was a very fun weekend, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. It was a very late Saturday night after the after party as well. Uh, later for some of us than for others. Yeah. I mean, what was surprising to me was that I think you pointed out that more people stuck around the after party after the tab had run out than any other year we'd done this. Yeah. It was a great conference, and uh, it was good to see so many people there and so many people at the after party as well. So, yeah. What, were, uh, what, what were some of your, your favorite talks um, parts of the day? So, to be honest, I ducked in and out a bit because I was trying to prep for my emceeing duties as much as I possibly could. But mm-hmm. I think my two standout talks of the day, or um, well, three, I really enjoyed our discussion that we had, but we'll talk about that in a minute. I also really enjoyed Merrill's talk about processes, so we'll uh, put links to those in the show notes as soon as they're out. And then I also really enjoyed Billy's talk about metaprogramming as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was great um, to have someone dive into how Elixir the language is constructed and how it's basically a lot of macros. Yes. And uh, to look at, well, how does your Elixir code translate into an AST and how can we use that in our own applications or not use it if you're not a big fan of macros? Yeah, I thought, but I th- honestly, they, both those people I just called out there were first-time speakers as well and they both did an incredible job of explaining quite complex subject matters and clearly got really into it before um, they they put their presentations together as well. So um, hats off to the, both of them. Yeah, yeah, they were really, that was really re- well done. But as well, I mentioned the discussion that we had. So we did something a little bit different at MPEX this year. Um, so typically, like in the conference, we we have, you know, regular conference talks, one after the other, um, we have keynotes to kind of introduce and close out the day as well. And then pretty much always 20-minute to 40-minute talks. Um, but this year, we decided to mix it up a little bit as well. Um, so we actually had this this more of a, like a fishbowl discussion format. Um, and that was kind of centered around uh, two people. So one of them is Dave Thomas, and the other one is Brian Mitchell. Um, and they were both talking about this idea that Dave presented, which is about um, kind of getting rid of OTP. And it's a very 
interesting, controversial subject. Um, and we wanted to actually do something a bit different on the podcast today as well, following on from these kind of experimental formats that we did at the conference. So um, I'm actually very happy to say that we have both Dave and Brian on the podcast with us today. So hey, hey, Dave and hey, Brian. Hey there, Chris. How's it going? Hi, Chris. Going very well. Um, so, yeah, we actually wanted to carry on a bit more of that discussion on the podcast today as well. Um, so it, it's going to be a bit of an experiment for us because we haven't done a, a more of a like a discussion format like this on the podcast as well. Um, but we're hoping to kind of carry on the discussion that we had during the conference, which we had to kind of end quite suddenly. Um, and there was a lot to unpack. So before we get before we get into it, uh, why don't we do a quick introduction of our guests? So um, Dave Thomas, some of you may be familiar with. He's a uh, writer and speaker. Um, Dave, do you want to give us your short bio? I'm a programmer. Nice. And uh, thank you, Dave. And <laughs> in the other seat, we have uh, Brian Mitchell, longtime Erlang programmer, uh, based out of New York. Brian. Uh, do you have an even shorter bio? You can take up more time than that. Oh, I, programmer is probably a good term. I don't stick to any one particular language, but Erlang is uh, one that I've had the pleasure of using for many years. So uh, it's been interesting getting more involved in the Elixir side of the community and seeing a lot of the things that that language has to offer. Cool. Great. Well, uh, glad you both could join us. So as Chris mentioned, the format it MPEX was pretty new and we thought it worked pretty well, although it was kind of short. So we're continuing on that today. And why don't we kick things off with um, Dave, if you want to give us a brief overview of your talk for those who weren't able to join us at the conference and some of your main key points, and then we will turn it over to Brian uh, for rebuttal slash continuing the conversation. Sure. Um, just one correction. You said uh, conversation stopped very quickly after that. In fact, Brian and I carried on that conversation well into the night. Um, so uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's ongoing. Um, and really, I'm not talking about getting rid of OTP. Um, I think OTP is fantastic. Um, and I think it is exactly the right solution for a certain class of problem. Uh, but at the same time, OTP was developed for a particular uh, class of hardware and in a particular environment. It was designed for effectively large numbers of very small, identical processes all running on a backplane, all locally talking to each other. It was designed for it was designed for um, basically standalone operation. It's effectively embedded into a telephone exchange. Uh, no management or very low management. Uh, very high ceremony changing. Um, and all of those things are fantastic uh, if what you're doing is writing that kind of application. And a lot of people are writing that kind of application still. But a lot of people are not. And some of the things that OTP does, I think, get in the way of that kind of new style of application. Now, I'm never, ever going to say that OTP is, shouldn't be used. Um, I think that OTP is a fantastic uh, framework or library or whatever you want to call it. Um, and I also think that a lot of what I'm talking about can be built on top of OTP. So what am I, what am I actually saying in that case? Why am I, you know, going on about OTP if I'm saying everything can be built on top of OTP? The problem I see, and this is my experience in the Elixir community. I cannot speak to Erlang. 
But in the Elixir community, OTP is kind of revered. Um, so when we do things, uh, we have to do it in, quote, the official way. And the official way is not always that easy to use in some of our applications. For example, OTP is very static uh, in terms of its configuration and often in terms of its runtime architecture. And it doesn't really handle the kind of rock and rolling that we're talking about in the modern world. Um, it's not particularly good at handling clustering and nodes and all this kind of stuff. Now, I know it is work, people are working on that. All I'm saying is that right now, yeah, it's not ideal. Um, it's not ideal in terms of um, some of the message passing stuff that we do. Um, the world currently is very much kind of like an event-based world. And the um, Elixir community philosophy is to try to tame that. And so the Elixir community wants everything to be flow controlled back to the sender. And so they are very reliant on synchronous calls and a pull model where the consumer is in charge of all of the data flowing through the system. And that just doesn't work if you're talking to you know anything apart from a web browser. It means that you are trying to throttle something, the world, that can't be throttled. And so again, I would like to see us moving away from that synchronous model into a optional push-based model and accept the fact that we're going to have all of our stuff is going to be, or the majority of our stuff is going to be one-way messages. And yeah, every now and then there'll be data loss because that's just what happens. And again, we can do that in OTP. All we have to do is to change the way we think about things and to start doing that as opposed to following what is really a fairly old-fashioned way of doing things um, based on, I think, maybe some misunderstandings of what OTP actually is. Cool. So a lot to unpack there. Um, I'm sure a bunch of our listeners are, if not reeling, going over several ideas in their heads about what they do or don't agree with. So before we get into some of the individual uh, things that Dave brought up, I want to turn it over to Brian to give first thoughts, general feedback, gut reactions. Yeah, Dave, in your original um, presentation at the conference, you mentioned a little bit about what OTP is, and it, I think it helps sort of clarify context for this Um a lot of folks talk about, you know, the, the compilers, you know, Elixir and Erlang compile down to Beam byte code, and then there's this Beam virtual machine. But the, the whole package of tools, all of these libraries that are built into the system, um, tend to be called OTP. It's almost like a name of a distribution of all of the parts and the tools and the patterns and the documentation and all of this. And so if the readers are not uh, familiar, familiar with this, um, the Erlang document documentation has a uh, really good uh, page on OTP design principles. And it's it's not the perfect place to really get into it deeply, but it might help you sort of, uh, you know, get your, your feet wet a little bit and understand exactly what we're throwing around here. But for the, for the scope of some of the things Dave brought up, you know, things around how we use gen servers, you know, calls versus casts, this sort of mailbox abstraction we have, um, can sometimes be um, forgotten uh, in a sense where 
our interaction becomes so focused on this gen server call uh, facility that we really think in terms of these function calls and less about the concurrent programming environment. Um, and so there's a lot to unpack on that side. Likewise, with regards to things being static, there are a lot of layers to this part of the argument. Some of it comes from how we bundle and build applications and the inputs into when we uh, come up with a concrete environment. So, for example, if you bundle a release in Erlang or a, a you know final product that you want to deploy, how, whatever that looks like, you tend to take certain files, whether it's source code and, and other other data files, and, and put them in some kind of uh, artifact, you know, tarball, container, whatever it might be, and ship those somewhere. Uh, OTP's uh, preference is to ship a sort of baseline environment or configuration uh, for that system as well at the same time. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean application configuration. We can talk about that separately. Um, but there's a lot that goes on after that that makes this seemingly static thing very dynamic uh, in the sense that why OTP chooses to be so static is that it allows it to build facilities that seem almost impossible in other languages. And I'm talking about things like release upgrades and hot code reloading. Those sorts of things are made easier by the fact that the baseline is a very stable, understandable system. And so when you want to move from version A to version B, you know exactly what you need to be able to do and you can script it and, and get it to work. So I want to jump in here, um, Brian, and I think this is a question for Dave. Um, why have... Erlanger has been doing things the way that they have been for a while. If you think that, all right, this received wisdom could be improved upon, or we're sort of, we just take it and run with it, we kind of cargo cult it, is there a good reason for it? I mean, this technology has been around for a while, so has it evolved in the right direction? Or Oh, or no, I mean, there is 100% good reason for it. And I think Brian just listed many of them. Um, that uh, the Erlang is designed effectively as an embedded programming language, and uh, its software is distributed as basically freestanding releases. Um, I mean, a typical release is literally, you know, everything you need to run it, including the runtime. So you can just ship this tarball off somewhere and it runs. So um, given that, uh, I think the current way Erlang does things is fantastic. But I think that you got to ask, is that what we want to do now? For example, Brian was talking about um, the ability to uh, dynamically change an individual module and how um, static configuration or static-ish uh, architectural configuration makes that possible. But that kind of is, if you like, a hack to do with the fact that when you distribute an Erlang application, you distribute the entire enchilada. And so you don't want to sit there and reload the entire telephone exchange's software every time you want to change one module. And so they needed a mechanism to be able to get in there and swap one thing out. But if instead we were to look at a more uh, modern architecture where we would have many, many distributed, um, you could call them you know, services, servers, whatever, then the uh, the level of swapping becomes uh, far more granular. And a lot of that stuff just goes away. And so if we could, instead of looking at things as one big release, an application that gets started and hopefully never stopped, and instead look at it as a resilient network of nodes, which can be running different versions of the same software 
and filter between themselves what they receive. You know, I just think that that's a slightly more uh, easy to adapt model than the current kind of monolithic approach. So it's interesting because you say, is this is this easier to adapt? Whereas my reaction as a kind of on the ground programmer is this sounds very lofty. And I recognize that you're coming at this from a um, like an abstract 10,000 foot point of view. But I wonder how um, how relevant that is to workaday programmers who are used to thinking about their applications and uh, what am I saying? Not more concrete terms, because I know people think about architecture and the design of systems. But if I'm trying to get something out the door, um, do I think about architecting my app in that way? Um, as opposed to if I'm building a telephone network, I have a lot of the requirements up front. I have a proven business problem that I'm trying to solve as opposed to hacking my way to profitability. Um, I would say that if you are developing an application and you are not thinking about architecture, then you're not developing an application. You're hacking. I think that there is always going to be a need to think about how things get done. And the architecture of your code is a big factor in terms of both the cost of running it and the reliability of running it. And so increasingly, for example, we're deploying to the cloud and not to in-house servers. And so we need to be able to create applications that deploy nicely up into EC2. Um, many people are running multiple instances of their applications and either load balancing between them or actually you know, switching between them based on content or whatever it might be. And again, that's an architectural concern. So yes, application developers always have to think about architecture. Now, in the Elixir, okay, let's step back one, one step. Um, Ruby developers, if they're writing a web application, they write it in Rails pretty much universally. Um, like it or lump it, that's what they do. And Rails sets for them a kind of, uh, it's not mandated architecture, but life gets really difficult unless you follow it. And so everybody writes things the Rails way, and that's fine. Now what we're seeing in Elixir world is um, currently the, um, the hotness in Elixir world is Phoenix and people are writing their web applications in Phoenix. And again, Phoenix sets a particular way of doing things. And the Phoenix way is the OTP way plus extra Phoenix stuff on top. And so with Phoenix, you're producing a single release that contains everything. Everything runs under the quote umbrella of one application. Uh, it's monolithic, just the way OTP tends to favor. And my argument is that the, um, the fact that Phoenix makes it easy to do it that way means that most developers will also do it that way. And what I'm trying to say is I'm not convinced it's the best way to do it. And I would love to start a conversation on how we can encourage people to write things in a more uh, uh, granular, distributed, whatever way. And you're right. Right now, um, people are going to do whatever's easiest. And so part of my conversation is how can we make it easy to do things in a more modern way? Um, with, with respect to some of these points around granularity and monolithic uh, construction of applications, I, I'm unsure exactly why you would brand some of the OTP patterns as monolithic. In, in a sense, what it drives you to do is build these things called OTP applications. And whether or not that's a good name uh, is not something uh, I'll jump into right now. But 
the OTP applications all have sort of a uh, boundary of of operation that other other applications might attach to and interact with. But for the most part, the the concerns of how the application boots up, whether or not it even has things to boot up, are all contained within it as sort of a, a boundary that's hidden. And this allows you to build applications, um, or we'll call them releases or programs, that have these parts in a much more modular and friendly way, building up to, to whatever behavior you want. And the nice thing about that, that approach is that um, unlike a lot of other systems where you want to do it more granularly, uh, there's a really hard problem at more of the macro scale in traditional applications. You look at, so for example, a lot of folks talk about moving away from the monolith into microservices. If you actually look at those code bases, they spend a whole lot of time sharing the kitchen sink at a code level. Um, and so the way all of their microservices boot up, do configuration, all of those things are effectively locked together. And in order to join the microservice swarm or whatever, you know, this, this holistic system is, they now have to sort of interoperate at this relatively rigid level of, okay, we all need to configure things the same. We need to speak some protocol that all of the systems understand. And from my view, it's not that much different from what OTP is doing at that level. It's, it's giving you a way to operate between all of these different parts. It gives a way to boot all of those parts, and it gives a way to configure those things. Um, and so in, in my mind, it is quite similar to what people are doing in a non-monolithic architecture when people talk about breaking things up into microservices. Yeah, I, I disagree with that from the initial premise, actually. So um, I think we're going to have to define application because it's just um, it's too confusing otherwise. So when you're talking about application, you're talking about the um, a lump of code that is uh, effectively can be built on its own but then is incorporated at release time into an overall release. Yeah? So in the in the Elixir sense, for example, logger is, well, I don't know if technically logger is an application, but all, all of the various small components, every time you do mix new in, in Elixir, you're creating an application. But you could have multiple of those mix new projects integrated together uh, via dependencies when you actually build the application. Yeah? So now you said that each one of those is freestanding, effectively, but well, that's no, actually no, not. no. They're they're isolated. They're not freestanding. Well, they're the not isolated either. Yeah, uh, they're not isolated either, though, because, for example, and again, I'm going to talk about Elixir. In uh, all of them right now, every freestanding mix project has its own configuration. Now I know that's changing in one nine, but it's still going to be roughly the same kind of idea. So everyone has its own configuration. So say, for example, I want to write a database service that I use to log names and addresses or something, yeah? And that's going to be a service that's going to be used by two or three applications. So I quite reasonably stick the database, you know, ID or credentials or whatever into that little service module because that way it knows where its database is and it can write to it no matter where it's called from. But I then have that as a dependency in two releases in two other large-scale applications, and immediately its configuration is thrown away because the configuration is not inherited from those things. The actual top level, the thing that runs first, the entry point, 
gets to determine all of the configuration. And therefore, it actually is interacting very strongly via configuration with all of these applications it includes. Now, there is definitely a time that you want to do that. But there are many, many times when you don't. And so that's a good example of where you have this kind of monolithic idea, right? There is one master configuration, and it applies to everything. And the only way to break that is to start these things independently, have multiple running entry points, multiple nodes running or multiple things running on nodes that then can be independent. And then you start approaching a services idea. Um, but Dave, isn't this like effectively what we're trying to do with Docker and isolation of, you know, containerization and running different services and different Docker containers on, on hardware in a commodity kind of fashion? Yes and no. I mean, it depends on how you use them. I mean, I, to me, Docker is no more than just the same as running on a virtual machine somewhere or whatever else, right? I mean, the entire idea is it's an abstraction of, you know, a release into some hardware. Um, it's how you structure things inside the container that makes a difference. Sure, sure. So let's 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 say for all intents and purposes, most people out there are probably going to be putting some kind of single service, however monolithic or micro that service is, in a single container, packing many of those services on a con on a single like box, whatever that's going to look like, right. right? Virtual machine or whatever else. So where you're coming from from this argument is basically saying that you want much more smaller services that have more defined contracts that are running in more isolation. So, okay, together, yeah. Right? Let's let's take a let's take a XYZ Corp, and mm -hmm. they have uh, a number of different uh, web presences and internal presences, and they need to have some kind of authentication and authorization system. Right now, in the current way of doing things, they are either all going to have a whole bunch of applications that handle that. Or they're going to have to have some kind of centralized service that handles that. Yeah. So if in the current kind of like mindset of, say, Phoenix, then what's going to happen is we're going to end up with multiple copies of code that all somehow handle authentication and authorization. Maybe you die by um, talking to someone else, but maybe not. And so we actually, you know, already start seeing problems there because we have this idea of the monolith, Docker or not, it doesn't make any difference. Um, but it's not just that. If we also have the situation where we have, um, a, say, I mean, I keep talking about Phoenix simply because that's kind of like, you know, what's hot at the moment. But we could have a Phoenix app that does, you know, something, maybe some data reduction work or whatever else, right? So it may have different kinds of workload that different internal applications inside that overall app require. Maybe some of them are CPU intensive, maybe some of them are memory intensive. And as we all know from the Rails world, sticking everything into one big app means you get the worst of all worlds, right? The, the CPU intensive stuff slows down the web and the memory intensive stuff slows everything down. So the ability to split things out just seems to make sense to me. Right? I would like to see a single um, thing, a service, whatever it might be, handling authentication, another one handling authorization, you know, and have architectures that make that less painful to use than the alternatives. I feel like I'm going to do the QI, like, you know, where you say the word and the, the alarm yeah, bells yeah, yeah, go yeah, off. But yeah. 
What about umbrella apps? Let's do I, it. I, before, before you before you bring that up, uh, I, I I do have a few things to say. I, I was pausing sure. there for a bit, but um, yeah, it, in terms of the way configuration actually works mechanically, I think it's actually kind of interesting for this topic. Um, and you know, few people may have actually dove in and actually looked at what their um, compiled output actually looks like. So you have all of these modules or files which contain a number of modules. So you have your .ex files that get compiled into these .beam files. Um, and that looks to be all your code and, and you're good to go, right? Well, there's this additional .app file that's sort of floating around in there. And this lists a bunch of metadata about the thing we're calling an application. And this, this is just anything um, that has its sort of own identity as all of these modules belong under, you know, this, this sort of label of XYZ library or application, right? And let me, uh, let me just jump in there to clarify for our listeners. Um, that file is not like a program file or code. It's basically a large data structure. Yeah. Isn't that right? Yeah. yeah so, a list of tuples with other lists inside of it that describes uh, different configurations. Yeah, options. it's an Erlang literal inside of a file. Erlang, uh, cool. er uh, in, in general, it's uh, sort of tools tend to take in data structures more than Erlang uh, code itself. Uh, this isn't true in all cases. You can uh, e-script a lot of things, but you know this is not a tutorial. <laughs> so we'll skip over that. You get this dot app sure, file, sure. and there's an interesting part clarify. of the dot app file. Uh, this this uh, there's a tuple in this list that has this uh, first first pair of the first uh, value in the tuple is E and B, the atom, um, and this represents. You know, okay, whatever I pass in the next value is the environment for this application. And it's sort of your chance to say, okay, I now have some key value pairs, and you can provide a bunch of information that the application can later read as it's booting up. The problem is, this was generated at compile time, so it could be misleading to think that this is the entirety of my environment. Um, you know, everything I ever want to talk about in, in the application is in here. Um, and then separately, when you ge generate a release, you have a second compile time configuration slot, which is this sysconfig thing. And so this is a system level augmentation to all of those environments. And in that file, you have the same data structures, but in this case, you can list many of them. And you can list ones for various applications that are in your release. So if you're using a specific logging library, this might say, oh, for this release, I'm going to use this kind of formatting. And so you might, you know, configure your formatting um, and other things you might, you might talk about. You could even put, you know, for example, a specific database connection string in there. And it will override anything in the .app file that the application sets by default. Now, the problem here is it's still compile time configuration, right? This is something that you're determining at the point where you build the release. Um, so, you know, there are a couple options on getting around this when you deploy one option could be to swap out that sys.config file on boot. Um, I've seen a lot of people do this successfully. It's not that pretty. This is more, you know, template generation of that thing has a lot of areas for, you know, error. Um, so beyond that, there, there are two kinds of configuration that I think are, are helpful to augment, but don't necessarily replace this application environment. There's sort of the, I've bundled up a user application that, you know, someone just runs. They install with, you know, uh, some kind of tarball. They don't know anything about Erlang or Elixir. So 
they'll want you know some standard configuration language and file. So there there are libraries like Cuttlefish in the Erlang world that sort of parse things, or Apache CouchDB had its own .ini style um, configuration management system. It even has a um, uh, hot configuration change system that allows it to both rewrite the files as users ask over APIs to change the configuration parameters, but also a way to like notify, push out uh, messages to processes that want to listen for change. Um, but without going uh, too far down that path, that's a really specific case of you know sort of vendoring software. The other one is where we really need to dynamically compute or retrieve these values. And, and this is becoming more and more common as folks move to things like Kubernetes and you, you don't even know what uh, where, where to look for another service. It's you know somewhere in some container on some machine. If you need to figure out what that IP address is, well, you know, you're going to have to jump through some kind of at runtime. Even, even if you were able to hot patch that sys file, those things can change far too often. And so in this world, it, it, it's really hard to find a one-size-fits-all strategy for that kind of configuration. It ends up being a very environment-specific thing. And I don't think OTP is trying to come in and say, don't think about your dynamic environment and things that do change all of the time. Don't, don't, uh, don't, um, don't configure no, those no, no, things. No. Yeah, but it, it's not that it's, it's not that it's telling you not to. It's just that it makes it easier to do it the other way. And that's, I think, my biggest complaint, right? I'm not saying OTP is wrong. I'm just saying it doesn't go far enough in today's world. Yeah, may, maybe. And I, I think, I think the message I'm trying to deliver here is that Application environments are actually a very elegant way of defining very well-known behaviors. Things like you want to change your logger formatting, right? And and its strategy for logging and maybe thresholds. Well, I want to do that. I want to do that at runtime. I don't want to do that once. Oh, you, you can. You can. That's the that's the nice thing about application environments is they're completely changeable at runtime. The thing is, they don't have this built-in idea of ad hoc change. Right. They're right. they're. they're Change on upgrade or change on various custom scripts you might write. Because you, you, if you go look at the application module, it exports a bunch of things, get end variants that are quite useful, but it also has put variants for a lot of things where you can actually go in and change those values. The thing is, it's rarely enough to just change a value and then hope things settle down. Um, this is sort of the, the Zen of Erlang in the sense that when you boot up an application, um, if you look at how supervisors initialize the system it's it's entirely synchronous single threaded process um, and this sounds absurd for such a concurrent system why wouldn't booting be concurrent and well the idea is around the idea uh, uh, getting to a stable known state is so much more important than being able to handle all of the um, complexities that could ha happen at any minute if you sort of open yourself up this 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 is hard to explain, but in a sense, if you think about why let it crash works, it's not because you're just letting the whole system fall apart. You've picked some part that is no longer in a known state. Something happened, and you're not sure how to get, make the same promises you made when you booted up your system, right? And so to get it back to a safe state, there isn't really a way to just sort of patch a few things or send a few messages. You want to reconstruct it very carefully just like booting up fresh for the first time, so everything's back in that we've scrubbed all of the errors kind of state where 
your inputs are good, your configuration's been checked, and all of those things. Configuration change ends up being a very similar problem. Except when that's done at runtime. All right, so if a supervisor decides to restart a tree, then that is not synchronous with the rest of the operation of the system. Well, it doesn't so stop there, the world, correct. No, okay, so therefore, in practice, Erlang is capable of concurrent initialization. It just well, doesn't do they, it. Well, Dave, that's, that's a little unfair. Um, no, no, I'm not being unfair. I'm just saying that the, that's a really good example of uh, the kind of um, this is the way we do it thinking. And I, may, I, maybe. I understand. So, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater here. I'm, I'm really trying very hard not to dismiss because I know that Erlang is an incredible achievement. All right, or the Beam or OTP or whatever. It's an incredible achievement. It has thousands of man years of very careful thought gone into it, right? And the last thing I want to do is sit here and be some kind of iconoclast about that. Yeah. What I, okay, but that, what I do fair. want to do, yeah, what I do want to do is to say, okay, yes, there is received wisdom that this is the way we do it, right? But in practice, it doesn't have to be that way. And in practice, there are alternatives. It is possible to start that system up piecemeal because that's what it does at runtime anyway. Right? If you take a shotgun to a node, it somehow manages to recover. Sure, back sure. But it, but just, just back to configuration just really quickly too. Right? I'm not disagreeing that the way OTP currently does configuration is the way you described, and it's great. Right? What I am saying, though, is Elixir, gives us the ability to have something of a fresh start, right? Now, it's a fresh start that is built on a very, very solid, firm foundation, right? We're very lucky that we can actually play around at the margins because all of the hard work has been done for us. But if in the same way that uh, Phoenix, for example, is obviously you could do Phoenix in Erlang, but it was done in Elixir, and it caught on because it was done in Elixir, et cetera, et cetera. We could, there is nothing to stop Elixir shipping with a configuration server in the same way it currently ships with a logging server. And that configuration server could load configuration from static files, but also be informed by other systems at runtime. And we'd have a nice API to it. It could integrate with application get env, but it could also have its own interface. And it could send config change messages to anybody who had subscribed. And that way we'd actually have a more dynamic configuration. Now, that's not undermining the way we currently do configuration. What I'm saying is, why don't we just look at some of the new requirements and see how we can you know, build new stuff on top of this foundation? And that way we could have, you know, Kubernetes, for example, could actually inject stuff into our configuration as it does its business. And that could be help when you're dynamically reconstructing an application. So um, pretty interesting. I want to kind of put a bow on some of the configuration stuff because there are uh, other topics that I think we're mm -hmm. interested in covering here. Um, and the one I want to switch gears to next is something, Dave, you mentioned in your talk about supervisors. Oh, yeah. Uh, since you just mentioned, oh, it's hard to update the configuration of a supervisor. What happens if um, it needs to restart its whole tree? Uh, how do we, you know, it stops the world. How do we notify the rest of the system something's changed? So um, why don't you tell us a bit about what you think could be improved with supervisors or how you think we're approaching them wrongly? I don't think we're approaching them wrongly. 
I just don't think we're being, we're not taking it as far as we could. So first of all, I think a newcomer entering Elixir looks at supervisors and goes, I haven't the faintest idea what's going on here. And so I'm just going to copy what somebody else did. I am perpetually odds that just about every single, I'm at some point I'm going to go through GitHub and find out that every single Elixir application has the standard default supervision strategy set up that comes with Mixed New, simply because why not? Um, I think also because of that, people don't do supervision or don't think about supervision in the right way. They tend to think of supervision as being somehow something to do with the application functionality. And it's not. Supervision is, um, Bruce Tate um, and James Edward Gray uh, describe it as life cycle management. And that's a way, way better description. Um, supervision is responsible for starting, restarting, and stopping processes. And that's fundamentally it. And if we were to uh, make that distinction more obvious, right? And this isn't a change to code. This is simply just a way of describing things. Uh, I think it would make it better for people. But then if we do that, then I would argue that supervision is kind of like the ultimate place to go to find out how your system is behaving. And so I would like to see supervision split out even more. I would like to see supervision being handled outside the um, the general flow of your source code. Um, and I would like to see supervision handled in a more declarative way. Um, so that, you know, how something like Ansible works, where you it looks at a system, it looks at a configuration that you've given it, and it says, okay, what is the minimum set of diffs I need to apply to the system to get it in line with this configuration? And I think we could do supervision the same kind of way because that would be so much more dynamic, right? So if you sit there and say, hey, you know what? Um, there's a sale on. I need to throw four more nodes at this, and on those nodes, I need 16 more copies of whatever. Being able to do that by just changing some numbers on a web page that happened to be the console for the supervision system, and then let the supervisors just work out for themselves how to make that, you know, how to make that happen. I think that would be fantastic. But then you take that one step further. Right now, we supervise processes, and that's all. But when you look at it, processes aren't the only things that can fail. Nodes can fail. Servers can fail. Clusters can fail. You know, the application can fail. So why aren't we supervising all of those things as well? And why can't we integrate supervision into things like load management, um, failure recovery of clusters, uh, network breaks, all that kind of stuff. Because supervision really is a really powerful concept, and we could make it even more powerful if we made it more universal. Brian? Yeah, I, so there's a lot to like there in a the sense that, you know, supervision works. Uh, you know, the way we've, we've deployed code in other systems just in general in the industry in the past has been so laissez-faire. You run it and you just cross your fingers. Um, and the way the airline runtime system allows you to use monitors and links and, and start getting some understanding of this life cycle of your application is great. Um, extending that, uh, I don't think anyone has any complaints. Um, the main thing, um, and I, I, this is, this is more of a minor nitpick, but the, the, 
really critical thing about supervision is, is related to the hard problems in concurrency. And so concurrency in Erlang is approachable partly because of the restrictions on certain parts of the supervision. And they're not terrible restrictions, they're just very important bits of metadata that it needs to do things correct and why we don't necessarily abstract it out automatically even further. And that is sort of the, when something does fail, what does it impact? It's very hard in normal code, especially in another language outside of Erlang or Elixir, to sort of be able to say, I just had my cache go down over here. It's going to need to repopulate things. Are there other things I need to, to restart as well? Because it expects the cache was in a known state at that point. Does it need to reboot as well? Um, or other other sorts of services. Um, and so strategies for supervision become a very important part of this. And it's sort of the declarative way of saying, okay, I've got my supervision list. These things rely on these other things to be able to function. If something goes down, like some token I was holding in memory to address other state in another system is now invalid. I need to re-up on that, right? Um, now we could say, okay, just handle all of that dynamically. But the problem is in a concurrent system, this just adds that many more ad hoc ways that various things can be in a surprisingly halfway valid state. Um, no, and, no, no, I'm not, I'm not saying... Oh, I, and I'm, I'm not saying, claiming you are either. I, I, I think this is just something where it goes unsaid uh, because either you're experienced enough to, to appreciate the difficulty or otherwise maybe you're coming in and it's the first time you've dealt with a system that has all of this extra concurrency. And so thinking in sort of this sequential mindset for your various components might catch you with a surprise of like, oh, wait, there's a race there. If that thing goes away and I'm calling this thing and it hasn't reinitialized yet or uh, vice versa, you know, various, various problems that can emerge just become far too hard to debug in my experience having dealt with things that didn't do supervision nicely sure. or properly. I mean and and that's why I think it's more important than ever to extend supervision and the current way of doing it to a wider variety of resources processes aren't mm -hmm. the only things that hold state and so I, so Dave what, what would this look like in practice is this going to be more of a like you extend the Erlang and it now manages servers and it's more like a let's just pretend it's more like Kubernetes or something and it's 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 a control plane and a top. No, I don't think it is a control plane. I think it interfaces with your control plane. Right? I think it, it acts as a it knows the topology because um and this is again why I think supervision should be outside your application. Because it is um a, it's complicated. It's something you want to be able to switch in and out. Um, I don't think you necessarily want, I mean, maybe Erlang Solutions says, hey, guess what? You can now use our brand new Zippy supervisor or whatever. Um, so you want to have different versions of it. How does it look? Um, I think it should look like Mission Control Houston. I think it should have all lots of screens with colors and flashing things. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I think what it should do is I should be able to see the current running topology of my application displayed synoptically. I should be able to have color coding based on criteria that I set in terms of service levels that I require. And as things start to get orange, I want to be able to click on a slider and increase the number of processes or kick off another node or whatever it might be. 
to, to handle that issue. I want to be able to inspect queue lengths and look at long-term trends on queue lengths. I want to be able to look at load on a on a, um, a server. So some some of this observability stuff does exist in some existing tools. They just don't tend to be bundled with the supervisor framework as it is. Because what's interesting right. is while you could do it in the supervision uh, system, these resources all have sort of an addressable API independent of whoever is monitoring them. They they can have any number of monitors, right? Um, and even short of monitoring, if you just want uh, certain kinds of accounting to happen, um, there are APIs for those as well. So you see, you know, bundled within, you know, just Erlang OTP itself, um, the Observer app is pretty popular to just sort of show how visible everything is in the system. What's yeah. interesting is that is that is just completely separate from the supervision system, and. You could do a lot of interaction through that, the shell. But and, that's be, and yeah, things. but that's because the supervision system is a one-way street, right? It's static in that respect. And what well, I'm I, suggesting, what, what do you mean by static? Because supervision, I'm, I'm saying that the the, the actual runtime uh, structure of the processes, by and large, is statically determined at compile time. Is is that really a limiting factor for most applications? And, and, and I mean in general because this is this is not just today's applications, but I, I'm just trying to think of a case where I want to completely replace something like a logging component with a different one um, on the fly without having any sort of code change or restructuring happen elsewhere. I, I just don't see such a big change being something where it's a matter of supervision. It seems much deeper. I don't. I think the problem is that I shouldn't be using the word supervision. All right. I think what I'm really saying is that I'm looking at life cycle. I'm looking at. I guess almost what I'm looking at is operation of the program as a whole. Right. So I'm looking at the operation of the processes, the various other resources, the ports, the nodes, the clusters, blah blah blah. Right. And it seems to me that we have a recursive model here, a fractal model of of resources, right? Yeah. But we seem to be constrained into separate tool sets and all this kind of stuff because we don't recognize that, that fractal nature. Think how much cooler it would be if, for example, your application or something external to your application that was monitoring it um, – as part of like general supervision says, hey, look at that. I've just had timeouts on seven different processes and they're all on that same node. Well, they're all in that same server. So I wonder if that server is going bad. So I'm, I'm thinking about this and, and, you know, the general idea here is sometimes labeled orchestration, but there's an interesting problem this causes. And I'm, I'm wondering if you have thoughts. Um, it's It's a common pattern in, in Erlang systems for, you know, each application to understand its supervision tree and, and its life cycle concerns because, well, those processes have various properties. Are they cheap or expensive to spin up, spin down? Which things are dynamic supervisors or simple one-for-one -one in the Erlang world? All of those sorts of things. But on the other hand, if you move to the orchestration world and the way all of these other applications are being deployed on systems like Kubernetes... Uh, you have this interesting thing of inversion of control where the applications are no longer really um, able to directly influence some of their environment. It's, it's injected. 
Uh, so, you know, where you're running, what that machine's IP address is, it's all, you know, you, you figure it out yeah. once you start. Um, but likewise, um, that inversion of control also means um, if the orchestration system doesn't have a way for your application to program it, then you're stuck with more um, static behavior from the application code's view rather than the operator's view, almost like a a change of prioritization where removing stuff that the code can do so the operator can do more. And this can be very powerful in the sense that sometimes what, what I use to explain Kubernetes is it's not about just solving a problem. It's about splitting problems up so you can make one someone else's job. So every developer can start focusing on a more refined portion of the whole system, right? And this is why generally you see those uh, systems deployed more so in large companies because you do need to make operations someone else's job at some point if you have very large teams. On a small team, it may be the same exact person. So, you know, that inversion of control ends up being a, a, a thing I, I would be concerned about around the application code's way of involvement in the lifecycle versus the actual developers and See, I, operators. I, yeah. Okay, so when I, I deployed my first web app, in 98, 97, something like that, right? And that meant going out and renting a server. It was a real physical server. And then uploading an operating system onto it. And then I would have to uh, get all the rest of the libraries and everything in place. And then finally, I'd probably have to recompile my application actually on that server, you know, with appropriate hash defines to make things happen. Yeah. We've moved on. A long way, and we're moving further and further into the kind idea of um, beyond virtual machines into isolation of concerns. And I think the more that we can rock and roll in that kind of world, the better. Now, the problem with the way I understand it, anyway, I'm not a Kubernetes expert by any means. Neither am I. But the, my, my understanding is the problem with Kubernetes is that it doesn't play well with some of the more static configuration issues that uh, the Erlang runtime has, or at least the way it's currently implemented. And so we have to fake it out with like weird DNS issues and this kind of stuff. Yeah, e EPMD is, is definitely a minefield. Or certain right. kinds of deployment. right. Well, EPMD yeah. has many, many problems um, that I mean, I think really desperately need to be replaced uh, sooner rather than later. There's a there's a little known um, airline implementation of EPMD now uh, that folks have been customizing in some cases. I do think this is a topic uh, that has come up in the past, but I haven't seen a whole lot. Um, it seems like a lot of the really interesting work is going on outside of. Um, the core of OTP, but what's interesting is it plays pretty well with it, and that's uh, projects like Partisan, um, which I think I've mentioned in the past, but uh, those uh, play very well with Kubernetes. In fact, I'd, I'd say um, they should just work. Um, a lot of the testing and benchmarking is done within things like Kubernetes clusters. So. Right. Can you, um, Brian, can you explain what Partisan is for the listeners and tell us a little bit about why it works as well, please? Yeah, okay. So Partisan, I, I don't think I'll do uh, it complete justice. Uh, so apologies to Chris Micklejohn on this, but um, Partisan is a networking and clustering library. And I, I, I use both terms because at the networking layer, it allows you to use various 
um, connection strategies uh, for managing connectivity within a cluster. And this can be various kinds of um, partially uh, connected meshes. Uh, you could just run it over distal at some levels. Um, and then on top of that are other various utilities for just managing various kinds of state and routing. Uh, and so this, this system works very well in the sense of um, being more compatible with things like Kubernetes, but also then uh, sort of going towards the, um, the scale side. It can scale much further than, well, it's unfair to say much further. I'd have to see an experiment, but it seems more scalable than Visceral. Um, performance certainly becomes better at large scale than Distral, which is which is an interesting outcome because Distral or distributed Erlang um, is sometimes the label given to this internal implementation uh, inside of the runtime for communicating between these nodes. This is written in C. It's highly tuned code and you know you'd think you know that would make it faster and better. And in many cases it is very nice, but it, it clearly has its difficulties, and we can start seeing this um, when you know you look at issues like head of line blocking and, and other things. Like there's there's a whole lot of very interesting, promising stuff around this. I don't think I should probably give the whole tutorial on this. Instead, um, a link I would drive people towards is Chris Micklejohn's talk he gave at Code Beam SF this year. Um, I think it was sort of a last-minute addition to that program, but it uh, really gives you a nice overview and gives some early results on some of the benchmarking he's been working on. Um, and really, it's uh, you know it's still you know being developed, but it's it's very capable now. And uh, I think this is sort of a sign that we can take what we have today and evolve it. And it's exciting to see something that's still so compatible with the rest of the ecosystem allow you to start thinking in terms of tens of thousands of, uh, you know, partially connected uh, machines. So that's exciting. The interesting thing, though, is that we're talking about, and 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 again, I'm 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 not going to knock what's being done because I think it's remarkable. Uh, but we're talking about effectively configuration of a virtualization virtualized environment. We're talking about faking out processors because we have applications that have conventional life cycles. And there's another area in which we are kind of constrained by the model, but we don't have to be. I mean, we're talking about a, well, they call it a functional language, and it's kind of like it has aspects of a functional language, certainly, which is based around message passing. So why aren't we the biggest player in whatever you want to call serverless computing, functions in the cloud, whatever else, right? We have all of that stuff, but it's actually kind of hard to deploy. Why? Why can't we have a look at different architectures? Why can't we move away from the idea of networks of, you know, iron? The serverless computing question is really interesting. I've seen people attempt to use it in, in some pretty creative ways. Um, and it certainly could fit Erlang pretty well and Elixir by extension. But yeah, I, I think that's an open question. I, I don't really have an easy answer for why Erlang and Elixir have not really been adopted in certain areas where they actually fit quite well. 
Um, the interesting thing for many years was that people didn't talk about using Erlang. They felt it was uh, almost a trade secret at some level. Um, this has changed a lot. The Elixir community is far more talkative and open, which changes some of that dynamic. But I don't know if that is enough to say that's the reason. Um, some of it may just be there's enough other stuff being invested in that you know, people don't want to pay twice, you know, and, and, and develop something and go and in, in the uh, Erlang ecosystem. But I, uh, I find that um, a little short-sighted. So hopefully the, the industry doesn't lock into one way of doing things. But, you know, time will, time will have to tell for us. So I, I wanted to actually just riff on that point a bit, Brian, that you were talking about there about, like, why hasn't Erlang been adopted? And Dave, to be honest, like, a lot of the points you're making here feel like this this need for us to kind of proliferate our ideas a bit more amongst the broader community, right? Like, it feels like, to me, some of the things that you're talking about are making Erlang and Elixir and the runtime a bit more widely used and, wide, and you know, finding other applications for it. So I wanted to get your impression of, is that a, like, build it and then they will come? Or is that a, like, we need to be out there, you know, yelling about this thing? I think that we need to allow it to be built. Right now, mm. the attitude is we build it, you use it. And what I would love to see is a more exploratory uh, way of looking at it, of um, a community which actually welcomed more radical suggestions and doesn't say, yeah, we have to go with them. We don't have to vote on this or anything else. But, you know, we will, you know, support many different schools, many different churches inside the Beam architecture. And that's, that's I think if we did that, I think then that would make us more welcoming. I think that would actually encourage smart people to come along and experiment with stuff. And we can choose the good stuff and abandon the bad stuff. Mm. So at this point, I will plug the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation, which in my mind <laughs> is there to support just this sort of thing, where any individual with an idea can come in and create a working group to develop these ideas and build out some of this infrastructure or some of these applications and try them out and put them forward and see if they see if they get any traction. That so worked for Java. And you like these. You I like said what you it, hear. I said that worked really well for Java. <laughs> I, I really think that the key thing that makes the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation interesting is its community focus. And yeah, Java certainly has a mix of corporate and community-focused work. Their conservatism shows, though, and, and certainly it is not going to automatically work. Um, and I guess we have many excuses to make of why it may or may not work, but I, I think it's worth trying. And in the sense here, I think my call to action for people listening and thinking, oh, I, I think things could be better, is we should create these working groups, we should have these conversations and we should try and come up with changes or reports or, or you know, at least figure out exactly where things are getting disconnected. Um, for many years, it was really, you know, Ericsson's little programming language and, you know, it had really great properties enough that a lot of other people have adopted it. 
now it's it's a large community, and it comes with companies of all shapes and sizes that also bring various kinds of programmers, including hobbyists. And you know, there's so many things we can't assume uh, without everyone listening, and uh, you know, ourselves included, uh, joining in and, and and trying to figure out where this goes in the long run. Uh, now, that doesn't mean we don't have things to debate right now, um, and and really, you know. We, we can keep digging into some of these topics. I think we could go all night. But I, I am really excited about the, the foundation. And I, I'm with you. And I, I mean, as, as we described over a beer yesterday, whenever it was a couple of days ago, you know, if, if there is a working group that's discussing these kind of topics, count me in. You know, I, I would love to participate. My worry comes because I have this kind of natural English cynicism. Um, that says that we can produce all the paper we want. What is there to say anyone will listen? And that's my concern right now. Um, I have produced many different proposals for many different things and pretty much universally get the, that's not how we do things around here response. And my, my concern is that all we're going to do with working groups is it's kind of like busy work to keep people from pestering the core. And, you know, there will be some things that go through that are kind of blessed, and there will be things that go through that are um, kind of not blessed simply because, like I say, they're not, they're not how things are normally done. And so I'll, I'm, I'm going to reserve judgment, and I'm going to participate. So as the, uh, the resident hacker of this group, um, I mean, what's, what's the answer for getting these things into production? Um, I mean, I appreciate papers and all that stuff, but... You know, I like to see shit going down. So how do we go from this to that? Is it a matter of wresting control from uh, the Ericsson folks? Is it a matter of just having someone write a bunch of code or an application that espouses these principles or forming a company to maybe have a like broader supervision solution that they vend out to other companies? Uh, from what I see, you know, in, in OTP, there's capacity to do a lot of these things. And, and I mean it in, in two different ways. One... There's, you know, maybe a few things missing in terms of facilities that could be more universal. Um, perhaps uh, configuration hooks and listeners are something every application could have. And we just have a way of pushing those notifications and making that uh, a little more dynamic and having a way to manage various kinds of failures in the supervision system around configuration as well. Um, we did a lot of that at Cloudant um, and... There were tricky things about that, but you know what? That's why we have discussions in working groups. We can sort that out. We can dig into you know what did and didn't work at the you know over a thousand machine scale. Um, and the other side of it is um, we can also make sure that OTP gets out of the way. It's not that you have to always use OTP for everything if it has an equivalent feature. So you, before when we talked about what OTP is. It's the whole distribution. It comes with everything from an XML parsing library to this observer app to it's just so many things you may not even know exist in there. Just spelunking for an afternoon and you'll you'll discover all sorts of curious things. Some of that doesn't need to be used. You're not bound to use XML. If you want to parse XML, you may find a lot of other easier to use solutions out there. Whether or not XML should still be bundled in OTP is a is a question, but it seems to be used. So, like it's 
it's not really in your way. But if supervision becomes something where there is one thing that could be changed to help applications make a different choice, that's the sort of thing where we can say, okay, that that choice is, is limiting. And, and unfortunately, that requires a very concrete example. And I think right now, one thing we're lacking is sort of this really rich set of conversations around real-world concrete applications where people can point at something and say, I wanted to do this. Uh, because what we end up doing instead is we have these sorts of, well, I prefer this convention because in my experience, it ends up this way. And it's very hard to find interesting and creative solutions if it's only about what's worked in experience versus uh, specific problems where we may come up with something completely new separate from things we've done elsewhere in other systems and separate from what we see today in OTP. Um, and I think concrete examples also help make sure that we're solving the problems we intend to rather than talking about things that may or may not actually help uh, real programs. Um, and I don't think Dave disagrees here. It's just a matter of the process um, and the, the, the foundation for how we critique the system. And it's also why, you know... Uh, <laughs> Early on, there was sort of this, you know, first impression of, oh, does this mean you want to get rid of OTP? And, you know, Dave's answer was no. And, you know, it's not necessarily even that OTP will even need to be largely replaced if certain things are found. It's it just a discussion that is left to be had. And I think Absolutely. understanding what is already there um, doesn't necessarily um, mean that you are best to govern the future because you don't know every application developer. And likewise, uh, you know, coming from the outside, there are a lot of reasons why things are the way they are, not just because that was historical, but because certain kinds of concurrency and certain kinds of uh, new capabilities that the system brings that are unique from other systems uh, have caveats, have, have trade-offs. And those trade-offs are really interesting to explore, but not always very well documented. And so trying to guide people to understand why supervision hierarchies work the way they do is difficult and maybe also a, a flaw in that we're assuming that everyone is thinking about applications the way we you know, do. And there's, no, there's another interesting aspect of that. I agree 100% with everything you just said, right? Um, I mean, totally. Um one of the other interesting aspects, though, is that something I find is that often the act of documenting something, particularly something that's been tacit for so long, makes you suddenly realize that, wait a minute, that's not necessarily true. It may have assumed, for example, low network bandwidth or high latencies or whatever it might be, right? And quite often the act of documenting actually is a revelation in itself. So I am 100% behind that as well. But one other aspect that's not covered by any kind of community process at that level is um, stuff that's not necessarily libraries or services or anything else, just how you write code and why you write code. And that is also something where I'm seeing some very muddled leadership. Um, let me give you my current you know, irritation on that front. And that is the naming of callback functions, right? It's about 50-50 if you look at people that are creating new libraries. 
50% of them will give their callback functions weird names, and 50% of them will call them handle something, you know, handle underscore something. And then the weird name will be the first element of the tuple that it receives. So some people are going to be copying the gen server way. Some people are copying the gen FSM way. Some people are copying Phoenix. Some people are copying Phoenix PubSub. And guess what? They're all different. Um, and sometimes there's a good reason for that. But quite often, it's just didn't even think about it. And that's the kind of thing also where I would love to see some proper leadership and some proper, hey, it's a really good idea to look at it doing this way. Um, small little things like gen server does not define a start or an init, forcing you to do it for yourself if you do a use gen server in Elixir, which is fine, except you don't really need that for many, many simple gen servers. I would love to see that made optional just to cut down the amount of boilerplate. All these kind of small little things that are not, you know, a revolution, but merely just a clarification. And again, I'd like to see us thinking about the legacy that we're leaving behind. I'd like to see us focusing on, you know, the fact that we have the opportunity to make things different and make things better. And just relying on the same old, same old is not going to make that happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, everyone should be aiming to improve code quality. And, you know, the, the, the methods that we go about determining quality can, can be hard, but the easiest, lowest hanging fruit in every case that I've come across is always quality that is improved by looking at the things that you're not questioning and going, well, what is the convention or why am I doing this this way? Is there a different way? And there's so much code that we write that it's not necessarily about some cyclomatic complexity or some other metric. Uh, it's really coming down to, did we actually ask why we wrote it this way? Um, and sort of right. explaining yeah. uh, to ourselves even just what that is and what it means. Um, I think also it's a weird experience as a programmer coming to a language that is like the grandchild of another language. And you sort of, by nature, defer to these old bulls. And maybe it would be different if I were 22 and like no one can tell me what to do and I've got all the right answers. And so I'm going to talk back to some of these experienced people. But coming to the language when you're older and more experienced and a little more tempered in your own temperament, reserved in your own temperament, um, there is kind of a natural deference to someone who's like, yeah, I've been doing this for 15 years. No, they don't have all the right answers. But I think that's a, a quick reaction, particularly when they show a certain depth of understanding in this thing that uh, you don't. I think it's harder for Elixir developers to um, get to the point where they feel comfortable calling people out or not necessarily calling people out, but challenging um, the received wisdom. Yeah, I don't know if that's actually true because I'm actually seeing, I think in the first year, um, there was definitely a lot of um, the Elixir folks with the rabble in the community, right? They don't understand. They haven't been here long enough. They haven't had the pain that we've had. So, you know, they'll, they'll learn. Um, but about a year later, maybe by the time the second code beam came along, um, it was different. And the Erlang folks were listening to some of the stuff the Elixir folks were saying and taking it on board. 
And to some extent, um, and this is a conversation that Brian and I had, the Erlang folks actually seem to be slightly more open to rocking and rolling than the Elixir folks do. I think the Elixir folks are still kind of like walking on eggshells a little bit. Um, maybe because they don't want to offend, you know, their, their, I don't know what the relationship is, their grandparent or something in the Erlang community. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's that, uh, you know, some of the Erlang developers have been around long enough to see the points at which things fall apart on their own and need circumvention, need assistance, need, you know, whatever the next step is in the evolution that, you know, maybe OTP itself should have had or where things just fall apart and you can't rely on things like distributed Erlang or scaling with ETS or other sorts of systems. Sorry, my cat is uh, making a little noise. So yeah, the the explanation there is, is sort of interesting. It may not be all that universal, but in my experience, um, if you have something concrete, um, there tends to be room for a conversation. The venues for this maybe are the other part of the difference in, in the sense that, you know, some of these um, newer mediums are not attracting developers that have been around longer. You're not going to find as many um, old timers on, say, a Discord server versus on IRC. Uh, and so the tone of the conversation might vary even in the Elixir community based on, you know, where you're having the conversation. But uh, I don't know, as, as people listen to this podcast, I'd be curious to hear if they feel like it might vary, if, if maybe um, our analysis of both the Erlang and, and Elixir sides of the community um, are different from their perspective. Uh, it'd be really interesting to, to get more ideas of, you know, where people think so this reverence for OTP uh, comes from. Um, certainly everyone who's used it long enough comes to understand some of the um, values it's trying to provide. Um, whether or not you know, everyone agrees that it does a very good job is, is entirely subjective, but sort of the, the ability to appreciate its goals and, and design and understanding t- does take time. So it could be also that uh, we, we see things just change over years as you go from not understanding to understanding and still sort of, you know, taking in uh, whatever it is. And then you get to that point where you also know that everything is finite and doesn't infinitely cover all of your use cases and you know, software will ever need to change from here on. And, uh, you know, that's that's a fact of, you know, the systems we build and the trade-offs we make. So I think... and uh, Yeah, and it's what you're talking about here is is absolutely true. I mean, that's a learning model where when you're first setting out, you really you need rules. You need to be told how to do things because you don't know and, you know, you could waste a lot of time otherwise. And then as you gain experience, you start to be able to make your own decisions. It's very interesting to me. I had a conversation with Joe Armstrong last year where he said, he actually doesn't use gen servers most of the time, um, you know, and that's because he didn't need to, you know, and he had the experience and the confidence to say, hey, who cares? You know, I'm going to do this my way. Um, and all I'm saying is I think probably the the youth and to some extent insecurity of part of the community 
Um, I don't mean youth in terms of age. I mean youth in terms of the, you know, as a community, Elixir hasn't been around for that long. Right. Um, that I think is tending to make us uh, more conservative, more worried about offending people or making a mistake. And the Erlang folks, I think, are guilty of doing the, you wouldn't believe how complicated this really is. And that kind of like adds to this feeling of insecurity on the Elixir side. Um, I would love to see us documenting the reasons for things and getting away from the OTP, it's incredibly hard, you'd never get it right if you started again. And instead, having someone just describe, you know, this is why we have this problem, right? This is why we're doing voting on this or whatever else it might be, right? And then have well, people Dave, understand I think, it. I, I think you had the strong point earlier that, um, and this is kind of related to documentation, is why was this designed in a certain way? What were the assumptions at the time? co-located hardware, latencies that we could understand, a security model that didn't require a lot of um, protection against the outside world. And those assumptions have changed, or at least now we are using this technology in a very different setting. And so if you re-examine um, the decisions in a new light, it's time to make different decisions. Absolutely. And, you know, we don't, I think a lot of, um, a lot of the community, the Elixir community, could stand to understand why the decisions were made in the first place. And I do agree with you that um, to the extent that those situations are no longer applicable, uh, the Erlangers are very welcome to change course. But, but I think also, I think there's something to be said here about, I think sometimes the Elixir community has such like rose-tinted lenses about OTP in the beginning anyway, because it's one of the reasons they get sold the language, right? Like, and there isn't like, there isn't always a ton of overlap where we're hearing from a lot of older, more experienced Erlang engineers in the community who are also talking about some of the, the gotchas, some of the pitfalls. And I think some of this is because of the failings of us, like as a broader kind of ecosystem and a broader community to actually connect on different levels. Mm. I, I, I know we're doing work here and I'm actually really glad that we are rebranding things like Codebeam so it's across the ecosystem and we're doing things like the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation as well. But I, I still feel like there's more work to be done because, you know what, there's so many people who are like, I think they view OTP and I think they view, to an extent, like Elixir is a bit of a silver bullet. Yeah. Yeah, and because it's how it's being sold, you know. Mm -hmm. And added to which, they then not only think it's a silver bullet, but they actually adopt the targets. So, for example, right. this idea of nine nines reliability, whatever the hell that right. means, and the idea of we're never going to throw a message away, are all things that are kind of basically at the end of the day come from a telephone exchange, and we're writing web applications and. Very, very rarely do people die because our web application loses a transaction. Um, so our constraints are different and our models are different. And I don't think people are thinking about that. I think people are still, you know, adopting the old way because that's the way we do it. Well, it, it, it's um, not bad in one way, in the sense that if you know that that way might work, then you don't risk something that may not work and the cost you may pay is that you may get something that is less ideal um, because you've traded risk away right and like most software development mm. trading risks is definitely part of this 
But if, if someone says, okay, this is how you can do something and this sort of setup in OTP will work, then that's not necessarily a terrible thing. And I don't, for well, example, yeah, but, you know, uh, this, I, I don't want to derail things too much, but, you know, so this, this conversation around, you know, cast versus call becomes sort of an interesting one where there's sort of a, a technical edge there of, you know, back pressure is not always an option. But load shedding as well, depending on how you do it, can actually lead to even worse problems because if your load shedding on the wrong side, it ends up being work to do the load shedding itself. And so it's not as trivial as just saying, oh, we'll lose the message. It might actually mean that the capacity you get out of this system is much lower than you would think because you spend time load shedding means you can't get up to 100 Hundred percent capacity, and then decide to load shed, because you'll you'll you're, you're already using that time and that extra resource you need to do the load shedding. Now can't be done, and so you fall over completely, and, and nothing's graceful about that. And so there's there's a technical challenge in doing that, and it certainly has approaches. And, and I think we discussed some uh, the other night uh, at the bar, but the the idea of just running into that brave new world has a ton of risk. And if these right, people aren't, aren't ready to go in and, and sure you and I have probably seen enough software where we could probably expect or predict some of these problems. Some of these other folks may not understand that load shedding isn't free. You know, you, you actually need to spend time in that queue and drop the message on the floor, which sounds easy and, and, and small, but it actually can have tremendous effects on the system. So I think the, 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 the argument there, though, is that you, by, by looking at making radical changes, you're looking at increasing risk. And then why would you want to do that? Well, yes, absolutely. But if you look back to 2005-06, um, for good or for bad, Rails changed the way people write web apps. You could argue that people that came into Rails were taking incredible risk. They were using, you know, one of the slowest interpreted languages there was on the planet, one of the most memory-intensive languages, and it didn't even have support for running server-side, right? The initial Rails applications were effectively CGI. Yeah, um, yeah, or Bobby, right? You know, yeah. yeah, and effectively, you know, because it had certain qualities, certain characteristics, it changed the way people think about writing apps. It engendered, I don't know how many startups that probably wouldn't have happened if they had to be in PHP. Although, to be so, fair to Rails, one of the best things about it was not necessarily the risk of unknown technology, but the, 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 um, the trade was you could see those results so fast. So you right, took, right, right, you took right. 15 minutes of super high risk and you saw that scaffolded application work and you made some edits that 15 minute blog video may seem absurd you know in retrospect no one actually built apps exactly like that but the idea was that people could actually go through the motions and see it working and effectively disarming a lot of the you know danger or at least the perspective that there was a lot of danger Absolutely, yeah. Adopting and, and, something or, new because it just yeah. worked, right? Yeah, um, it was and that's, very that's exactly that's exactly what I'm saying. Is that 
we there are risks associated with all change. And what we need to do, I think, as uh, the earlier adopters of Elixir and the more uh, outgoing of the Erlang people, is that we need to think about those risks, think about which ones are real and which ones aren't, mitigate the ones that are to some extent, but also take advantage of the ones that aren't and produce the equivalent of our own 15-minute blog, right? Which wouldn't be a 15-minute blog. It would be a 15-minute thousand-known distributed app, you know? Right. Um, With my view. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no, okay, we're not going there. Okay. How many Raspberry Pis do you have? Let's put uh, hang, on, hang, on, hang on a second. Hang on a second. Just for the, just for the benefit of the readership here. Are you, of course, you're not going to be able to see this video, but I'm looking at... No, they won't, but we can describe All right, it. Look, see what, can you see what you're looking at? Right. Oh, yeah. Right. That's my current uh, distributed Elixir test rack. It's a stack of <laughs> one, two, three, four, five or six, I can't count, Raspberry Pis all networked together over a gigabit Ethernet. So, yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I think we can we can change the world, right? And I think we have that opportunity. I think we just need to ha- take some take it in hand, you know, have some courage and go out and so, do it. I think that on the note of we can change the world, we should probably end <laughs> our discussion there, chaps. Um, I don't like cutting this off, but we're also at about an hour and a half mark. And the people that have got all the way to the end here, I think we should give them a round of applause. But also, I just want to say a massive thank you to you, Dave, and to you, Brian, for your con- uh, for the conversation here today. I think there's a hell of a lot of very interesting points that we've touched on, and I'm sure we could go into a lot more depth here as well. But um, yeah, I just want to say a huge thank you for both of you for being on the show this and evening. Can I just so. say it's been a real pleasure having these conversations with Brian, both you know during the conference, after the conference, and now here, because it's really refreshing to be able to have a conversation like this where we can, you know, agree on some points, disagree on other points, and actually explore, as opposed to just say, "No, you're wrong." So, thank you, Brian. Likewise, Dave. I I don't have a lot of. Um experience with uh you know being able to dive in and actually critique these levels of Erlang because a lot of the folks i've worked with are you know coming in to this sort of system new um and in the past you know these teams where i've been able to um you know explore things with folks coding in in the same environment have been the ones who knew more than i so i i usually was on the other uh side receiving more of the uh, the wisdom, but now it's it's uh, great to see that you know Erlang has grown up uh, beyond you know a one language ecosystem, and it's it's hard to describe how exciting it is to both see new ecosystems around languages, but also different perspectives people uh, bringing to the table. I think it can only make things better. Yeah. So thank you so much again. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to have these conversations to help give us direction to go forward, and I think it's also important to take concrete actions. So if any of our listeners are inspired by what you've heard on here, um, please get in touch with us or get in touch with Dave or Brian directly. Um, I hope that's cool with you guys. If I just offer sure. that up, yeah. Um, 
and yeah, do get involved in the foundation. I think that's a great avenue for um, getting these ideas into the wild and seeing uh, seeing if people adopt them. So I want to, uh, yeah, thank Dave and Brian again for their time, for coming uh, onto the podcast with us. I hope to have you guys back on here soon to continue the discussion as things evolve. I would love that. Great. Chris, you want to give us our wrap-up spiel? Sure, we will. There will be some show notes coming out. Um, We will put as much as we can put in there from this episode. There was a lot discussed, so we'll try and cram as much as possible in there. So uh, hopefully you're clicking on those links and you can read a bit more about some of these really interesting subjects. But as always, thank you so much for listening to the show. Um, You can rate us and review us wherever you're getting this podcast in your ears today. If you could give us a rating, that would be most appreciated. And send this around to your friends. Share the love. Tell everyone about this great conversation with Dave and Brian. We would massively appreciate that. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that via Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Elixir Talk. Or you can even open up a GitHub issue at github.com slash Elixir Talk slash Elixir Talk. So, guys, we didn't tell you about this, but at the end of the show, we also keep Elixir in. So, on three, let's also keep elixir. In. One, two, three. Keep elixir. Keep elixir. Keep elixir, elixir in. In. And have fun. <laughs> <laughs> that was probably the best one. <laughs>